Hey, Hannah, how old are you right now? Three. What is it like to be three? Um, you need help from mommy and daddy. You do need help from mommy and daddy, don't you? Yes. What's the best part of being three? Um, putting on pajamas. Oh, I love that part. Wait, what's the worst part of being three? Crying. Oh, you don't like crying? No. Oh, me neither. So I have a question for you. What? What's something we've taught you? Um, do podcast by myself. How to do a podcast by yourself? Yes. It's funny, I don't remember that, but uh, this is related to that. Oh. Today we're going to do an episode. We're going to teach parents how to be better teachers and leaders for their kids. What do you think about that? Then. So we have to tell them what it is. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here's what to say. What? Say, this is Coaching for Leaders. This is Coaching for Leaders. Episode 310. This is 110. Yay! I love you. Oh, I love you too, sweetheart. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I'm so glad that you joined our conversation today. If you're listening for the first time, this episode is going to be different than some of the other episodes you typically hear on Coaching for Leaders. And that's because this episode is about one of the most important leadership activities that many of us do, not all of us, but many of us do in our lives, which is leading children effectively. And if you've listened to this show for a bit, you know that Bonnie and I have two small children. It is probably the place that I entertain the most doubt in my leadership skills. And yet it's also the place that is the most important place for me to lead well. And so I think a lot about parenting. I think a lot about discipline. And many of our academy members also have small children And those conversations tend to come up in our academy conversations as well, too. And so I am really thrilled today to look at leadership through a different lens, but also a very important lens in how we are leading in our families and with our kids. And I am thrilled to be able to welcome Tina Payne Bryson to the show today. She is the co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 20 languages. She is a psychotherapist and the executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California, where she offers parenting consultations and provides therapy to children and adolescents. She makes frequent media appearances at venues like Time, Good Morning America, Huffington Post, Red Book, The New York Times, and Real Simple. Tina, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I can't wait to talk with you about this topic because you're right. There's so much crossover between being a leader in our homes and being a leader out in the world. But even if we're not parents, typically people have nieces and nephews or their grandparents or there's a kid on the block that comes over and meanders in their front yard or whatever. So kids are part of our lives. And I love getting to talk about it because much of what we know and from the science about what's most effective in leading kids and changing behavior and building their brains and their characters 
is actually pretty different from how most people try to get there. So I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh, me too. I first picked up your book about two, two and a half years ago. A friend of mine is a psychologist. And at the time, I remember I was struggling with our son was just getting to that stage of like two and a half, three, we're starting to push boundaries. And (laughs) I just, I felt very inadequate of like being a good parent of of handling discipline. Well, I I was doing it, but I wasn't doing it in a way that I liked. And I asked a friend and he recommended your book and I picked it up and I think I read it in a day or two. And I was, I was, it, it struck me how much I had to learn and how different it was than what I thought were the right things to do. And so part of the reason that I, I think Dan and you wrote this book was to change the cultural conversation about what discipline actually is. And one of the things I've heard you say is that a lot of the ways that many of us tend to respond to tough situations with our kids actually are counterproductive to learning. And and maybe that's a good place to start. I, where are we missing it on the big picture stuff when we think about like culture and society? What I think is so cool about really looking at the science and really understanding how the brain works in the context of relationships allows us to see that much of what we do in the name of discipline is counterproductive. It's not effective. And it doesn't often feel good, either to the kid, to the parent, or both. You know, when Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, the title is what comes last. And we often really struggle with the title. And so we had a colleague beg us to not put the word discipline in the title of the book. And, of course, her reasoning was sound, which was that typically the word discipline, people most associate with the word punishment or the idea of, you know, punishing kids and making it so hard on them that they won't want to do something again. Well, instead of kind of staying away from that word, Dan and I decided, how about if we reclaim the original meaning of the word, which is to teach. Discipline means to teach or to build skills. And we started looking at what are the most common ways that parents try to go about doing discipline. And what discipline's really about is raising kids to be self-disciplined and to have the kind of characters that they do well in the world even when no one's looking, for them to be kind, resilient people, right? That's kind of what we're all going for. Yeah. And so those are skills that have to be taught. That's, that teaching is required in order for that to happen as development unfolds. So if the whole point is to teach and to build skills, then kids have to be in a state of mind in which they can learn if we're going to be effective disciplinarians. And if the brain is either in a reactive state or it's in a receptive state where it can learn, What happens a lot of times is the worst behavior, the bad behavior, often happens when kids are in reactive states of mind. And then as parents, we respond to them and we try to do this discipline when their brain isn't even really capable of learning very well in that moment. And so in the name of discipline, and of course, by that, I mean teaching and skill building, what is most helpful is to connect with our children in a way that moves them into a state where they can learn. And that's where the discipline can be most effective. And this is something that when I first read the book, I, I, it's as close to a book that I could describe as life-changing as far as that, that particular thing you just mentioned, that perspective of when I engage with my kids and thinking about where they are at the moment and are they ready to hear what it is that needs to be said. And maybe we could say a little bit about the biology of the brain. 
And I'm wondering if you could frame that for us, just so we have a we have a picture of like we can see those different uh, places and how they show up in our action with our kids. So one of the ways I think about this in terms of the biology is you have a nervous system that's pretty well balanced most of the time. You've got a sympathetic branch that's like the gas pedal to make you go and kind of get revved up and get excited or start feeling angry or those kinds of things, more intensity. And then you have a parasympathetic branch, which is like the brakes that calms us down. And, and that's kind of a huge part of being able to go to sleep at night is kind of that turning down of your nervous system into lower states of arousal. Well, what happens is when that nervous system is well-balanced, this is actually what I call the green zone. And when we're in the green zone, even if, we're, even if a kid's frustrated, even if they're afraid, they're still able to handle themselves well. They're still able to make choices. They're still in control of themselves. But if they start going into a reactive state, they can go into the red zone. And this is a hyper state of arousal. Your heart actually beats faster. Your blood pressure increases. Your eyes get bigger. And this is actually where the brain starts going into the beginnings of a fight, flight, freeze reaction. So there's this thing in our nervous system that's going threat, threat, threat. So when a parent is yelling at a kid or when the kid's just really frustrated or really angry by something or really afraid, they go into this threat state. And when we're in this threat state, our inner ear muscle actually even changes where it's hard to hear the human voice. So parents are saying stuff to their kid, their kid can't even really hear them very well. So our whole physiology changes when we go into a reactive state versus a receptive one. The thing that was so interesting to me around the biology and just the practical of how to handle this with kids was thinking about what you talk about in the book around tantrums. And I found this to be so true when our kids have experienced this. Yeah. Of, of the under, if you can understand that basic biology, you realize that when a child is in that reactive state, they, they actually feel biologically like cannot <laughs> process the logical things that you think you're saying as a parent nope. and um and so i was really because the traditional advice that all of us got and we saw our parents do was you ignore tantrums don't give attention to that right and when right. you and and you realize like reading this book and looking at the research like that advice is completely wrong like we just didn't know back it's then the opposite. yeah it's the exact <laughs> opposite so uh, what should right. what is the right thing to do with the tantrum so here's the thing whether it's a tantrum or the kids just being completely even oppositional, where they're not necessarily crying, screaming, flailing, kicking, that kind of thing that's more aggressive, they might just be completely oppositional in that moment too. This, what I'm about to tell you is very counterculture, so brace yourselves. Um, let me tell a story. All right, so I'm in my bathroom brushing my teeth, and my eight-year-old comes running into the bathroom crying, and he says, JP five-starred me. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but apparently when you slap someone hard enough that you leave a handprint, it's called five-starring someone because the finger points look like the five points of a star. Oh, okay. So I lift Luke's shirt and I go, oh my gosh, there's JP's hand. Are you okay? So the first thing I do is I comfort Luke, right? I'm like, are you okay? Do you want something cold on your back? I'm okay. So he's eight. So he's, you know, he's old enough that he can recover pretty quickly. So now is the discipline moment, Dave, because the perpetrator is standing around the corner, right? <laughs> right? And no hitting, right? Like hitting is not okay. You know, two and three-year-olds, four-year-olds, they're going to hit intermittently. And as kids get older, they're going to hit their siblings even a little later than that intermittently, but not okay. So I come around the corner and it's time to do the discipline. It's the discipline moment. And I come around the corner and JP, who's six, uh, five or so, is standing there and he is on fire. I mean, his face is red. 
his hands are, his, you know, his muscles are tense. His eyes are wide, like he's breathing fire. He's totally in the red zone. And so here are my options, right? So here are some things parents might do, okay? My tendency when I'm not in the green zone myself or when I'm not being intentional would be to say, why did you hit your brother? You know, we don't hit you like that. Like, why would you do that? So I'd use that tone of voice. And I would be asking this question why, but I'm not at all being curious. I'm not really asking. I'm lecturing. (laughs) I'm totally lecturing. I'm laughing because I've done the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not even listening to the answer. I don't even care, you know. So that might be something a parent do. Another thing a parent might do is to be like, go in there and apologize to your brother right now. Yep. Well, does JP in that moment when he's in a reactive state, does he care that he five-starred his brother? Not one bit. When we're in a threat state, we cannot have am- empathy at all. In fact, he probably wishes he had 10-starred Luke, like he's still so mad. Another thing a parent might do is throw out a consequence. Well, you clearly can't be with people today, so I'm going to take away your play date this afternoon or go to your room or I'm taking away your Legos or something like that. A parent might also, and we know that even if so 50% of parents are anti-spanking and 50% of parents are pro-spanking, 95% of kids by the age three have been spanked at least once. So it's an almost universal childhood experience. Um, A parent might say, well, I'm going to show you what it feels like to be hit, right? So these are some possibilities. So what I'm about to do first requires that I am in the green. (laughs) First requires that I am ready to teach, that I'm calm because reactive states are contagious. So I respond to JP in the moment as if he were physically hurt. He is emotionally in a state of stress. He's in a reactive state. There's stress hormones pumping through his body. He's furious. And so I look at him and I say, oh, JP, what happened? Come here. And I reach my arms for him and I soothe the crap out of him. Now, he's the perpetrator. He's done something wrong. And I'm going to get to the discipline. But if I start lecturing him or addressing his behavior or anything in that moment, it's going nowhere. His brain can't even register. So I start with connection and I start with soothing. And he begins to tell me that his brother had done something to him, right? He did something really unfair. JP tried to talk to him about it. He made fun of him again. So he feels wrong. He feels like he's the victim in the circumstance, right? Which often happens in these moments. So... I say, that must have made you so mad. You were so frustrated. You wanted to tell grandma the story and Luke wouldn't let you tell. He told the story and that must have made sense. So I understand. I would have been frustrated too. And I'm rubbing his back and I'm just pouring empathy on him. As I do that, within less than a minute, he takes a big breath. His body softens. He begins to relax. And now I know he is moving back into a state where he can learn because he's not in this fight threat state. He's in moving into receptive state. You can see it. You can watch it in their little faces and bodies when they're calm and relaxed. And so then at that point, I could say, you really hurt your brother. And when I said that, his little head tipped down. And that's the most powerful moment right there because he's experiencing a healthy conscience of what we call healthy guilt. And I allow him to feel that. I said, you really hurt your brother. And I said, you, you know, that's not okay, right? And I let him sit in that feeling because as early mammals, we had to be connected to each other in a tribe because if we were ousted from our tribe, if we were kicked out, we were more likely to get eaten. So we have this thing in our nature, in our biology that makes us have that feeling if we violate the mores of our tribe, we get that healthy guilt feeling, that conscience that's like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. And it's a really unpleasant feeling. And so it wires the brain to not do it again. Because if you keep doing it, you're going to get kicked out, which means you're going to die, right? So 
So I allow him to feel that feeling. And then I say with, say, say to him, you know, do you think you're ready to make things right with Luke? How do you think you can make things right with him? And so he talks about going to say he's sorry. And we say, you know, that your tone of voice is going to matter. Are you ready to really show him that you're sorry? And then we talked about what happened there. You got so mad. And, and what can you do differently next time? So at the end of this interaction, when I'm telling this story to crowds, my audiences will often say, yeah, but didn't you give him a consequence? And I say, okay, let's go back. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to teach and to build skills. Did I do that? Check and check. So I'm done. And here's where the counterproductive step happens, Dave. I think had I yelled at JP, he would have felt like no one understands him. Someone did something to him. Or if I'd given him a consequence, like I'm taking away such and such, all of his attention would have moved away from that kind of internal experience of guilt and the the idea of thinking about what he can do differently next time. And all his attention would have been on how unfair I was to do this to him. So I'm not universally against consequences, and I actually think they make more sense as kids get older, but I think we have to be really thoughtful about them because they can be counterproductive because then you're moving away from teaching and skill building. And and I think this goes right back to what we said originally is our society tells us it's about consequences and punishments and all the things that we see in society. And yet that's not really what we're trying to do when we're disciplining is we're trying to teach, like you said. That's right. Because otherwise, if you're just trying to stop a behavior, if you have kind of what I call extinction thinking, where you're like, knock it off kind of thinking, and you're, but you're not doing anything to help them build skills, you're going to just keep having to do it. And, you know, that's one of the reasons we called it no drama discipline, because it really does reduce the, the drama. If you connect, you actually move them from these reactive states into these calm states very quickly. But you're also, if you're being an effective disciplinarian, you should be disciplining less over time. I think if we can keep our feet grounded in the idea that it's about teaching and skill building, we'll realize that most of what we do in the name of discipline is actually totally missing that opportunity. And often when we yell at our kids or we get reactive or we take, you know, we do consequences and for sure if we use physical punishment, the reason it's so counterproductive is because we're sending them into more and more reactive states, right? So if my kid does, if my kid says to me, I hate you. You're so stupid, right? And he is totally disrespectful. My instinct in that moment is to say, you can't talk to me like that, which is a dumb thing to say because he can. He just did. He totally can. But instead, in that moment, if I yell back at him, I'm actually turning his brain into more and more reactivity, making it less and less likely he can learn. So instead, what I would do in that moment is go back to soothing and connection. One of the things I I really want to emphasize, it's the thing that probably the most parents and educators who are using this in the classroom as well have come back to me and said, this is such a game changer. It's like a magic bullet. And so like when I talk about connecting with our kids and soothing them, I want to be really specific because sometimes we don't know what that looked like because we never had parents who did that with us. And it's certainly not what you, you know, see on television or, you know, out in the world. What I'm talking about is my kid, when my kid is having a bad behavior, I think I try to go in my mind like my kid's having a hard time. He needs me right now. It's like what you were talking about, about ignoring. We've all been taught you should ignore a tantrum. But actually, that's probably when kids are at their worst, that is when they need us the most. That's when they most need connection. So there are lots of different ways to connect. I think the main thing we want to communicate 
is I'm right here with you and give them like lots of empathy and, and all of that and to just help them feel safe. The thing that's worked the most powerfully very quickly for even, even in my office dads who were like, there's no way I'm doing this. I'll tell a, a story from one of my, I'll change some details, but this is a story from in my office. So the dad comes in with the mom. They've got a five-year-old boy who basically tantrums all the time. He melts down over the smallest of things. And it turns out this is a kid who eventually, as we become curious and peel back the layers about why this kid is having such a hard time, is that he has some sensory integration challenges. So he gets overwhelmed by things in his environment. But uh, the dad's like, I don't know what to do. This kid, we walk on eggshells all day long. Our family is at the mercy of his chaos. So I said, okay, look, what typically happens? Tell me about the last time this tantrum happened. He said, well, just right before we came, my kid's like, I want the blue cup. And he rages and rages about the blue cup. And I say to him, you can't have the blue cup. It's dirty. It's in the dishwasher. And he starts screaming and yelling. And I said, and then what? And dad says, well, then I start screaming and yelling. I told you you can't have the blue cup. And then I send him to his room, but then he won't go to his room. So then I carry him to his room, but then he won't stay in there. So then I'm holding the door shut and I'm screaming at him through the door. You know how this goes, right? Yeah, well. So it just gets bigger and bigger. And at the end of it, neither one of them even knows what the whole point is. Neither one of them even, there's no skill building. There's no teaching. It's like the dad feels like he has to win so that the kid knows he can't get away with it, right? And it's important that we have boundaries. This is not a permissive approach at all. We have high expectations. We expect our kids to do the right thing and we're going to, you know, we're going to discipline when there isn't, when that's not there. So anyway, so I said, all right, look, I want, I want you to try and experiment with me. The next time your son rages, I want you to stop talking so much because your kid can't understand what you're saying when he's in that state. And I want you to sit not at eye level with your child, but below eye level. He said, why would I do that? And I said, when you are below eye level, it tells the lower structures of the brain, no threat. And I said, like, think about it. if you walked up to a dog that was aggressive and agitated, would you yell at the dog? Would you kind of make sure the dog knows you were going to win? He said, no, that'd be stupid. And I said, that's right. And he said, I'd bend over and I'd put out the back of my hand and I'd say, it's okay, come here. And I said, yes, that's what we're going for with your kid. Because what we're communicating there nonverbally is no threat so that the brain can move back into a receptive state. So I said, I want you to sit in a really relaxed posture below eye level. And I want you to only say two things. One, something empathetic about his feelings. Oh, buddy, you're having such a hard time. Or wow, you're so angry. Something like that. And the second thing I want you to say is I'm right here with you. And the dad said, you want me to sit in a submissive posture to my child. And I tried to get a little fancy here uh, and make some humor. I said, no, I want you to sit in a strategic posture to downregulate the nervous system. And <laughs> he kind of rolled his eyes. Uh, a couple of weeks later, they come back to see me. And they walked in and the dad said, you know, I, I thought that was the stupidest thing. I'll admit to you, as soon as we got to the car where I knew you couldn't hear me, I told my wife, that's BS. I'm never doing that. I said, but you're back. And he said, yes, like, you know, within a day or two, my son was having such a raging tantrum and a moment of desperation I sat on the floor. He said, I don't think I did it the way I was supposed to because I said something like, I can tell you're really mad, but I'll sit here with you. And I was like, oh, it's a step in the right direction. <laughs> and he said, my kid calmed down faster than I've ever seen him. And he said, but something else happened. He said, I was able to stay calm in a way that I never have been able to. And there's so much science behind that that we don't have time to get into. But the basic idea is that the brain is an association machine. 
And when you stand over your child and you wag your finger and you start yelling, it activates the circuitry in your brain that is all about fighting. But when you sit in a relaxed posture below someone's eye level, it activates the circuitry in our own brain of everything's safe, everything's okay, I'm in control of the situation, I don't have to fight, you know, all of that. So this dad was able to stay calm, this son calmed down immediately. And that's one, that was the first time I tried this. And it's the kind of thing, like I said, that's changing schools and changing families where it, if you don't feel like you want to be calm, it helps you kind of, you can force yourself to sit in a relaxed posture to take a breath and say, I can see you're having a hard time. I'm right here with you. And it almost puts us in a state of service. And it's it's almost yeah. like servant leadership. I, I'm having this image of I'm thinking of the pictures I've seen of Pope Francis washing the feet mm. of of the people that he is serving. And I almost for me, uh, this is one of the things that I had forgotten about when I read the book the first time, and then I've done in recent days to kneel down at a child and to say, "I understand what you're feeling. I see you're upset." Yeah. It it. Almost and t- almost a hundred percent of the time, it changes the dynamic almost instantly. Oh, it's so really bad. powerful, yeah. And I, I, I can't let you go without Ew. saying something about timeouts because this, this was also a big change for us in our household when we got introduced to your work. And uh, while you know people go different ways on um, spanking, and I know there's a lot of different philosophies. A, a lot of people use timeouts, and and we have in our a house. Lot. You guys are not fans of timeouts, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, tell us more about that. Like, how does that fit into yeah. what we've talked about? So here's the, here's the thing, is that, you know, the, the research shows, and I want to be really careful about this, because we were really misquoted, and there was an article that Time Magazine did on, that we wrote that they manipulated terribly and, and communicated some things about it that we did not write. So I want to be really clear. The research shows that timeout can be very effective and it's a wonderful alternative to reducing spanking. It can be very effective. But here's the problem with the research. The problem with the research is what they measured is not how 99% of the parents actually do timeout. So in the research that shows that it's effective, the parent actually is, it was actually like time away from whatever the interaction is doing. So the timeout in the research is basically the parent directing their child away from the, 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 directing their attention away from the child for even a few seconds and then re-engaging with the child. The timeouts that most parents do are the naughty chair, the one minute per age, the go to your room, sending kids away from us kind of thing. And that's not what the research measured. So I used to be a timeout mom. I used to put my kids in timeout and my introvert actually would come up and hit me and then go put himself in timeout because he liked it. It it was like ridiculous, right? (laughs) Uh, It didn't work at all. And then my second kid, I'd put him in timeout and then he wouldn't stay there. And so then I was like, well, I have to reinforce the boundary, right? So then I would end up sitting there and then he would struggle in my arms and then he'd end up biting me and it would escalate and escalate. And I was like, what are we even doing? So it made me start really looking at the science behind this and, and looking at other options. What I really believe is that when kids, like you said, you know, the message we give all the time is to say, you know, when you're happy, when you are in control, when you've got it all together, then you can come back and be with me. And I want to give kids the absolute opposite message, which is when you are falling apart and at your absolute worst, I am here always as best I can be. That doesn't mean your behavior is okay, right? The problem with timeout is oftentimes, 
We send kids away from us when they are, their stress hormones are coursing through their whole body, which is why the bad behavior is happening in the first place, or they're just impulsive. They do something they're not supposed to do, or they're experimenting. There's lots of reasons for misbehavior. But then we send kids away from us, and it actually activates their attachment need because the attachment science shows that when we are in states of distress, when we're stressed out, that is when we most need closeness or what's in the research called proximity. Mammals are like this. Puppies are like this. And chimpanzees are like this. So what I recommend instead is, first of all, absolutely use timeout for yourself, okay? That is one area I'm a big fan is if I'm about to yell or threaten or respond to my children in a way that's not helpful or hurtful in some way, the first thing I need to do is to get away. So I can say to my child, I'm so mad right now. I can't handle myself the way I'd like to. I'm going to go take some time to calm down and then I'll be back, right? Obviously, safely, if you have a baby, you can't do that in the same way, but adapt it for your children's ages and your home safety. So I'm a fan of, of taking time for ourselves so we can be in the green zone. But for kids, instead to do the connection instead, to say also, so what we can call time in, where we take advantage of that opportunity to reflect with our child or to just sit there and say, it's hard, isn't it? Even if they're two, just say, you're mad. I'm right here. See, that's the other thing with time out. You send them away from you. They go sit in their room. Some of them just play with their toys, and they're glad to not be with you because you're screaming and you're ridiculous anyway. It's not doing anything to build skills. Timeouts don't do really anything to directly teach. And so if you can sit with your child and you can talk about what happened, you can even do this with a two-year-old, then you're really taking advantage of the time to reflect inward, to connect, and to prove to your child you're there when they need you the most. And then you're doing what the research is actually really measuring, which is the original meaning of timeout was actually that time in of taking that time to make that connection. And like I say, teaching, there's so much of this is about teaching. And I I can't remember if you mentioned the book, but the even the word discipline, I think it comes from disciple, right? Uh, originally, or there's some yeah, connection disciple, to that? Yeah, disciple. Yeah, for sure. Like Jesus' disciples. But also when you think about disciplines in a college, I mean, it's, this is the original meaning of this word. And so here's, here's another way to think about it, Dave. Instead of like the whole consequence, command and demand kind of mind of parenting, where we're thinking about how do I make this so unpleasant so my kid won't do it again? Or thinking about what do I remove? What am I going to take away from them with a consequence? thinking about more of an additive model, like what am I giving to my child that they have the skills to do better next time? Well, the word that's coming up for me on all of this is empathy. And it's a word we've talked about a lot on the show over the last six years of interacting with bosses, employees, in marriage, and now with children. And it's, it's it's, like you said, it's not what we're taking away from our kids in the form of punishment or consequence, it's what do we give to our kids? And the, the thing that I am coming away from reading this book the second time again and our conversation today is, how do I give our kids the experience of having empathy more? Because the more I do that as a parent, I am teaching them how to be empathetic people. And if I can give them that in the world, then they can do so much with that, not only for their own children someday perhaps, but uh, through the world around them and the people interact with them. That's just so huge. It's huge. And it, what's really cool about empathy is it's not just modeling behavior where they just watch you do it and they learn it. It's actually, there's something super cool happening in the brain. The brain is like a muscle, right? The parts of the brain that get activated and used the most become the most integrated and the most connected. So you, when, we, 
when we have them practice empathy, when we provide them with empathy, we're actually wiring their brain for empathy. And this is, you know, Dan and I have a book coming out in January called The Yes Brain, January of 2018. The book is uh, called The Yes Brain because a yes brain is open and receptive, right? It's flexible. Mm. It's willing to learn. It's resilient. It can say yes to the world and it can say yes to adversity and challenges and all of those things. A no brain is shut down and reactive and defensive and and afraid and all of these things. So, you know, the term that my co-author invented, Dan Siegel invented, is a term called mind sight. And mind sight is the ability to see your own mind and the minds of others. And we know that this is absolutely a skill that kids can build through the ways people talk to them and the things that they, you know, are exposed to in the world. I mean, just really simple everyday things. I'll just give one example of one of the ways we can build empathy besides being empathetic to our children. When you're out in the world, people aren't always lovely. And so here's an example. We were uh, at a restaurant and the waiter was not being friendly at all. And, uh, you know, my instinct was to be like, what's his problem? But in this moment, I was being really intentional. And I said to my sons, I said, he's, he's not being very nice. I wonder if he has something really hard happening in his life. I wonder mm. if he's having a really hard day. And my sons were so sweet. Like I could get weepy thinking about this. One of them was like, yeah, maybe his mom's sick. And another one said, yeah, maybe his dog died lately. So then my kids could like imagine it's not like that guy's a jerk, but instead to be like, I wonder if something's going on for him. And then as we're reading stories with our kids and we're watching television with them to kind of think about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Or I wonder what she's thinking. I wonder what she's feeling to just tap into the minds of others. And I think, you know, most of what we've talked about today is the idea that we can be on autopilot. The brain loves to just go with default and what's already wired in there. But without awareness, we really don't have a choice. We just kind of go autopilot. But with awareness and with intention, we can start making different choices in how we parent children, how we talk to them, how we interact with them. And if we help our own children have and build insight and empathy, it's going to allow them to have more awareness and to be more intentional. So this has a multi-generational impact. And this is one of the things I just love about your work so much is that you do such a masterful job, you and Dan, of, of taking things that are very, very complicated. The biology, obviously, is all grounded in really solid research and making it very accessible. I and mean, that's the word that keeps coming up for me around the book is it's very accessible. And you're also very real about, like you said earlier, the, the challenges you've had as parents. And, um, yeah. and, and so I, it, it's just a wonderful, it's just a wonderful starting point, And it's something that I've found to be so helpful and so accessible. So I hope folks will go uh, check out No Drama Discipline. Um, get the book. We are. Uh, I, I have a list, Tina, of <laughs> tons of questions we're not even <laughs> have a chance to talk through today. Um, there's so much here, so much in the book that we haven't even talked about as far as just the some of the, the big picture things, but also some of the tactical things that we can do on a daily basis. And one, one of the things I have to mention, because it's just been so helpful to me, um, one of the quotes in the book is, when a four-year-old doesn't hit and acts perfect all the time, we have concerns about the child's bond with his parent. When children are securely attached to their parents, they feel safe enough to test that relationship. And that has been really helpful yeah. to me in some tough moments of thinking like, okay, this is good that they test me and they don't test other adults because it means that they have a really secure bond with me and with Bonnie. And so I, I just, I, I really love those reminders that you give to parents as well too. 
So we mentioned the book, of course. The Yes Brain is coming out in January, so you can pre-order now. I'm going to be doing that right after this conversation. And of course, your website's a great place for resources as well, Tina. Uh, for folks who go on the website, we'll have it in the show notes. What, uh, what will they find there? What will be helpful to people? Yeah, it's tinabryson.com. There, I've got all kinds of articles. I've got you know little videos you can watch about what to do when your kid's feeling anxious about starting school in the fall and those kinds of things. And then, of course, there's links to the book. And both The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, the first two books, both have workbooks that go with them. So for parents who want to go a little deeper or who want to do like a book club or um, something like that, those options are there. And there's also some audio things for people to purchase, like the 10 most common things I talk about with parents in my office and some things like that. So just a ton of free resources and then some other resources for purchase if people want to go deeper. Tina Payne Bryson is co-author with Dan Siegel of No Drama Discipline. Tina, thank you so much for your work. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you also to Hannah for helping me out up front. And if you found this conversation helpful today, I hope you'll take a moment to share it with another parent you know that or family that you care about that you think would benefit from this conversation. As we talked about a lot, there's a lot of things that are coming out in the research and best practices that are really counter to some of the things culturally many of us have heard over the years and learned from our own parents and grandparents. And so there's an opportunity for all of us to get better at this. I know I'm going to be sharing the conversation today with a lot of folks in my personal network as well. And I am conscious of the fact that this conversation is not directly relevant to everyone in our community. Bonnie and I, for many, many years, struggled with infertility, Didn't weren't sure we were going to be able to have kids. I know that is a pain point for um, people out there and for some people in our community as well. Rest assured, this is not going to turn into a parenting podcast by any means. Uh, we're going to continue to focus on the traditional leadership topics for most of the shows. And that said, um, as you've come to expect from me, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I am a big believer in the uh, developing the whole person. So while we'll continue to focus on the traditional leadership topics and many of the things you hear about on the show regularly, um, you'll hear me occasionally talk about parenting and bringing a guest on the show. You'll, you're going to see me bringing in other topics too on, on finance and work-life balance and health because I believe that if we are doing a good job of taking care of ourselves as the entire person, we are going to do a much better job for our entire organization and for the people we have the privilege to influence each day. So be watching for more of that as time goes on. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you'll activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership, especially if you're just listening for the first time or one of the first times. You can get access to my free 10-day audio course that's titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It is a great way to get up to speed on many of the lessons that you've heard here on the podcast over the last six years. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can get access to all of that just by going over to Coaching for Leaders. Now, a few related episodes to today's conversation. Uh, back on episode 50, I actually did a show a while back on leadership lessons I learned from being a parent, at least a parent for the first six months or so uh, when our, shortly after our son was born. Uh, that is way back in episode 50. So if you're interested in more on that, check that out. Of course, I've learned a lot since then, I hope. <laughs> also, episode number 190, How to Improve Your Coaching Skills with Tom Henschel. On that episode, Tom and I talked about some of the stories and analogies that are helpful for us to frame looking at things from the other person's perspective. And 
Uh, that's so important in leadership. It's so important in parenting. It's it's really critical in just about every human relationship. Uh, and Tom shared some stories about his daughter on that show as well, too, that really illustrate coaching for me in a way that I continue to think about regularly. So check out episode 190 if you think that'd be helpful to you. And then finally, episode 284, how to stop rescuing people from their problems. A lot of us tend to do that as leaders. A lot of us tend to do that as parents. Uh, Michael Bungay-Stanier was on the show, author of The Coaching Habit. We talked about the drama triangle. If you haven't heard that episode and you find yourself rescuing people from their problems, at least occasionally, that's definitely an episode to listen to. Check that out, episode 284. Coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number is the way to go for all of those. And by the way, if you're interested in applying for the Coaching for Leaders Academy, a few people have been emailing me and asking me about updates for that. Applications are going to be opening up here in September 2017. We're just opening up applications a couple of times a year now. It is coming up. You'll hear more in the next couple of weeks. However, if you want to be on the early alert list and be able to put in an early application, go to coachingforleaders.com slash academy to get on that early list. There'll be at least a couple opportunities for folks who are on that list that will not be available for the broader community. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash academy. Next week, I'm I'm glad to welcome Kwame Christian of the Negotiate Anything podcast. He's joining me to field some tough questions that our listeners are navigating right now. Uh, Questions from you. So we'll be answering those next week. Thank you so much to Learning Leader and Bree GF for the kind reviews you left on iTunes. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful. Have a fabulous week. And I look forward to speaking with you again next Monday for some tough negotiation tactics.